Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Hey there again, everybody. Welcome again to the 11th episode of the Lovable Podcast. This week we're reading and discussing week 10 of Lovable's companion book, which is entitled Why Shame is the Beginning of Your Story, Not the End of It. In recent weeks, we've been focusing on moving towards our thoughts and feelings, especially painful ones. And this week we're going to start to focus on a particular kind of painful thought and feeling, which is called shame. But I think you'll find that we do so in a way that is encouraging and cultivates hope. So I'm glad you're here and, and I think you're going to enjoy this. Before we get into it, though, a quick reminder. These podcasts are being recorded every Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock Central Time. That's Chicago time. Uh, and uh, you can go to Dr. Kelly Flanagan, the Dr. Kelly Flanagan Facebook page, to join us at that time. Uh, we record there almost every Wednesday. Um, but there are exceptions to that. For instance, uh, we're going to be taking a couple weeks off over the holidays. So if you want to be reminded of when we're recording or when we're not recording, um, and you haven't already subscribed to my weekly newsletter, you can do that. Uh, would love to have you join us. Go to drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar there, there's a, um, a place to sign up for my weekly newsletter. You'll get uh, these reminders uh, in that newsletter. You'll get a link to my uh, every other week blog post. You'll get a free sample of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. Uh, and you'll did I say free sample? I meant a free copy. Um, and then you'll get a free sample of Lovable. Um, and uh, yeah, so go ahead, get there, uh, sign up. Uh, we'd love to have you join us and uh, get you all that, that good stuff. Um, now, speaking of Lovable, if this is your first time hearing about it, this podcast will, I think, make even more sense and hopefully be even more helpful. If you read Lovable first, uh, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available in paperback and digital and audio, and you can get a copy of it wherever books are sold. Um, so go to your favorite place to, to pick up books, and you can order a copy. Also, if you're one of those people planning to pick up one or more copies of Lovable for friends and family this holiday season, and I just had someone on the blog tell me that they're, they'd gotten eight copies for friends, and it was going to be their only gift this year, and that I just... Yeah, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so honored. I feel humbled by that um, and uh, just so grateful. So um, if you're wanting to do that, uh, you still have a little bit more time um, before a lot of the gift giving gets underway here. So um, go to lovablethebook.com or, or your favorite place to buy books and check it out. Um, now let's get into this week's episode. I'm, I'm so excited to share this with you. I feel like we are in this episode walking through a doorway into big new territory um, and new territory that's going to be a game changer for so many of us. Um, so uh, without further ado, let's get into it. And uh, as always, thanks for tuning in. 
Hello, Facebook Live. Thanks for joining us to record the 11th episode of the Lovable Podcast and to discuss week 10 of Lovable's companion book, The Year of Listening, Loving, and Living. This week's chapter is entitled, Why Shame is the Beginning of Your Story, Not the End of It. Shame is simultaneously one of the most painful and pervasive emotional experiences any of us have, and the task of facing it is at the core of this journey to embrace our worthiness. So we're going to start approaching it this week, but we're going to do so in a way that looks at it through a different lens, uh, a lens that is filled with hope and encouragement. Before we do so, though, as always, let's check in on how you are doing with previous practices. We've covered everything from breathing to rest to simplifying your life to observing your thoughts to approaching your pain. And then last week, we talked about inviting help when your journey gets a little too messy to walk alone. I'd love to hear your reactions to this uh, part of the journey. Um, and to any part of the journey, really, regardless of where you find yourself at this point. So while you're thinking about that, I will share an experience with you um, that I had this past week that sort of gets at one of the significant reasons that I think a lot of us resist resist asking for help um, in this healing journey. And that's one of the things we talked about a lot in the last episode is what are the the objections that come up to asking for help? Um, And... So what happened was, uh, and I don't know if I was just a glutton for punishment or if I was maybe had one of those moments where I actually felt humble enough to hear the answer, but I sort of spontaneously asked my son, Aiden, who's 14, I know what it was. I know what the trigger was. I had just watched an episode of This Is Us um, and sort of witnessing the parents doing their best, making their best effort to, to do right by their kids, but making so many mistakes and just starting to see some of the patterns of the way it's hard for the kids in that show to to have these two people as parents. And so I said to Aiden, I said, hey, what's the hardest thing about having me as a dad? And uh, his reaction was all the sighing. <laughs> uh, and so I started over the course of the, the rest of the afternoon to pay attention to this sighing thing that I was doing. And the truth of it is, is that a lot of it was really just me sort of taking a deep breath to, you know, if I was feeling rushed or stressed about anything, I would sigh. But the truth is sometimes those sighs were communicating something. They were communicating a sense that I was feeling burdened by something that was going on around me. What a hard thing for a kid to be, to be the message being received in just a little sigh um, that your needs, your requests, um, the the responsibility I have to raise you is a burden, um, and that somehow our worthiness is is con- is, is sort of dependent upon our easiness. Um, and boy, how how hard if if that gets internalized for Aiden, um, his worthiness is dependent upon his easiness. That people are burdened by his needs. Um, how hard will it be for him to ask for help down the road? How hard will it be for him to ask? Um, to, for someone to, to lift some of his burdens a little bit. So um, it was just an example, a moment of awareness for me this week of how here I am sending, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on a podcast episode encouraging everyone to ask for help. And in the meantime, sort of unaware as I'm sending my, my son the message that, um, that could ultimately undermine his, his willingness to ask for help at some point. So um, just a, a moment of awareness for me. And uh, I'd be happy to hear any other sort of reactions that people are having to that practice of asking for help, the idea of asking for help, or anything else that we've talked about so far. Deb W. writes, the discussion on what's under the anger emotion has been helpful for our family this week. Our 14-year-old sometimes gets stuck in his, and we were able to dive deeper, so thanks for that. Oh, thanks, Deb. I'm so, I'm really glad to hear that. (laughs) Um, 
and you're referring to that passage I read from Lovable in last week's episode, um, that if we can sort of attend to our anger rather than reacting or acting upon it, um, we can sort of begin to get at the softer, more tender emotions that under underlie it, sometimes sadness, sometimes anxiety, um, and whatever that might be. Um, and as a, as a parent of a 14-year-old as well, Deb, I can so relate <laughs> to what a relief it can be to finally get underneath that anger. So I'm thrilled to hear that that passage helped, helped encourage that. Hannah writes, I think children will thrive with that humility and realness from the parents. Yeah, Hannah, something that I said and maybe sort of formed the foundation of that question for me, something that I said a lot in sort of podcast interviews as we were talking about lovable and parenting a lot this year was kids don't need perfect parents. They need parents who know they're not perfect <laughs> and uh, and can sort of, uh, sort of digest that with their children and get feedback. So um, I'm not perfect. <laughs> and uh, Aiden reminded me. Deb F. writes, I used to sigh a lot out of frustration. I caught myself doing it. How interesting how it could be interpreted by others. Yeah. Deb, you write, I used to sigh a lot um, out of frustration. I wonder if you have less frustration or if you're just handling it differently. <laughs> be curious to hear that. Deb F. writes, handling it differently. Yeah. So um, frustration still exists, but you're handling it differently. I remember I listened to a, um, it was like a, a panel interview and the Dalai Lama was on the panel and uh, the interviewer said something like, oh, gosh, I would love to just follow you around for a day and just get to soak up your peacefulness. And he very humbly said, well, if you followed me around for a day, um, what you'd see is sadness and fear and anger and, um, and sort, of, sort of acknowledging that he has the full range of human experience still, that doesn't go away, but his response to it is what people perceive as peacefulness. Um, and and Deb, that sounds like that's sort of the experience you're having. You don't cease to be human, um, but you learn a new way of, of responding to, to your humanity. So beautiful stuff. Heather writes, I had a job interview for a job I didn't get. I asked for feedback on why. The hiring manager generously shared why. She told me that it wasn't me, I was awesome, but the staff wasn't ready for someone as strong as I am. Wow, what? For you to be willing to ask for feedback, right? Stand in the way of that feedback and truly hear it. And then for, for this person to be as sincere as that and to give you the honest feedback that this place couldn't handle your, um, your strength and, and your embodiment of your worthiness, that is pretty remarkable. Um, asking for feedback was a first, writes Heather. I'll ask a different question too, real quickly. Uh, because Heather, you're you're sharing what happened to you in that job interview is um, a reminder to me that when we ask, hey, how, how are these practices going? It's sort of a, you know, it's a performance oriented question. But if we, if we phrase it slightly differently and said, so as we're going through this year, are you noticing any new things happening for you? Are you noticing any firsts? Um, and there's nothing I rejoice in more as a therapist when a client comes in and says, I never thought I would do this, but I did it. Or I just found myself acting this way for the first time ever. Um, and you get those sometimes small and subtle, but tangible signs that something is shifting inside. And it's really hard to connect all the dots. Well, 
how did this practice lead to me doing this thing? Who knows, right? Um, but something is shifting. Something is strengthening. Something good is growing. Um, and so I'd love to hear more from folks about if there's any things that stand out as, um, as, as first that are starting to happen or um, new things that are arising within you. Heather writes, for me, it's fear of rejections. I faced it, moved through it, and ended up with some pretty great feedback. Yes, you did. Yep. So what's sh what shifted a little bit is not necessarily that your fear of rejection has gone away, but that you faced into it and moved through it. And were, you were willing to endure the potential rejection of the feedback, and instead you ended up with some really good feedback. Um, and that's a, that's a great example that what's shifting is not the fear going away, but the willingness to face it and move through it. That is so cool to hear. Um, and it, uh, um, it it gets at the heart of what these early months have been about, right? It's not about waiting to be ready um, to, it's not waiting to be perfected. It's not waiting to get rid of all of our uncomfortable feelings. It's learning how to attend to them, move into them, move through them, and find the good stuff on the other side of them. Such a beautiful example of that, Heather. Heather wrote, I'm sure it won't always be so easy. Yeah, thanks for that too, Heather. That's that's a gift to us as well. Um, that it's if you expect now, oh, okay, every time I'm just gonna I'm gonna be able to face into that fear of rejection and fly through it. Um, then the next time when it's harder or you shy away from that, now shame has a chance to wedge its way back in and say, oh gosh, you're not really getting anywhere. Versus saying this is this ebbs and flows. It fluctuates. I was able to do it today. I want to build on that. Um, but there's, there's nothing linear about any of this. Karen writes, first, instead of immediately feeling hurt by someone's comment, I ask, could I be hearing something they didn't really say? That is so good. Just that moment, right? Okay, so you're, you're going through this process of observation and curiosity. Um, someone says something that triggers some hurt, maybe even some shame. That voice of shame starts to pipe up and you're gonna hold on, hold on for a second. Um, maybe, maybe I'm interpreting this in a way that wasn't even intended. What are some other ways to respond to this? Now you're opening up a space within you that the voice of grace can actually speak into, which we're going to be talking more about in the weeks ahead. So, um, a beautiful practice and uh, anyone who's listening, not, not a, you'll, you won't regret adopting it. Julie writes, Heather, I get that. In my own hunt, I've developed a strong sense of what I want and some confidence that if they don't want all of my best traits, nobody will be happy. Sometimes the feedback is about someone else's ego and power play too. Doesn't always help in the stinging moment, but helps with perspective. Yeah, I well, that's such valuable feedback, Julie. Um, that you know, for instance, when somebody says, you know, we this place can't handle your strength, um, what they what they might be saying is that there's a basic insecurity here um, that doesn't know how to handle a strong person or. Um, or we've got too much ego here. We need to be in charge, and uh, we can't we can't share our strength with anybody else. We don't have the kind of strength that can be shared. Only the strength that can dominate. Um, and so this ties right back into Karen's comment of what might be happening in the other um, that explains the reaction and the feedback. Um, but uh, in this case, this this uh, this person gave you feedback that was about as close to to honest about that as as I can imagine anybody would give in the workplace. It's it's quite remarkable, actually. Shelley writes, we have two teenage sons, ages 15 and 17. They teach me so much every day, if only they came with a manual. <laughs> Shelley, the, we came across, uh, it's a Broadway musical now, 
called Dear Evan Hansen. Um, one of the songs was sung at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It's how our family was introduced to it. The very first song in the musical is um, Does Anybody Have a Map? And it's sung by two moms of teenagers. Um, and it's this real honest, like, we're doing the best we can, but, you know, for crying out loud, can someone give us a map through this? Um, and I can't imagine anything that would make someone feel that way more than a couple of teenagers at the same time. My goodness. Blessings to you. So I'm going to I'm gonna transition us a little bit here. Uh, and as I've said before, you know, as thoughts about our discussion so far continue to roll in, feel free to keep sharing them. I'll double back and try to respond to any thoughts or questions. So as, I, as I've been doing, I would like to connect this, this piece of the companion book that we're about to get into back to Lovable, um, sort of give it the context from, from Lovable. Um, so for a little context, I'm going to read a short excerpt from actually it's the very first chapter of Lovable, and the first chapter is entitled Our Original Wound. All right, so here it is. The whiteboard advertised our wounds. In Illinois, licensed clinical psychologists are required to accumulate 24 hours of continuing education every two years. I'd signed up for a weekend seminar about acceptance and commitment therapy, a cutting-edge cognitive behavioral therapy, figuring I could complete half my hours in just two days. Continuing education classes are typically tedious and boring and not terribly educational. The weekend of the whiteboard wasn't typical. The instructors begin the seminar by telling us we will be learning the therapy by experiencing the therapy. So we start with breathing exercises and periods of silent, mindful reflection. During one exercise, we identify painful words and phrases that have become embedded in our core. And then one of the instructors asks us to say our words out loud as she writes them on a whiteboard. What emerges is a breathtaking array of pain encapsulated in two words, not enough. We are a room full of psychologists who feel not smart enough, not attractive enough, not tall enough, not successful enough, not popular enough, not influential enough, not powerful enough, not strong enough, not anything enough. What words are embedded like shrapnel in my soul? Not interesting enough, boring, forgettable, expendable. Gazing at the words on the whiteboard, I'm beginning to wonder if there's something emotionally toxic in the Chicago drinking water when the instructor reaches up and pulls down a movie screen. After tapping a few keys on her laptop, she projects a photo of another whiteboard onto the screen. The words are arranged differently and written in different colors, but they are all there. The same not enough words on a different whiteboard in a different state. When she taps the keys again, the image of still another whiteboard appears. This one had been captured in a different country. Another tap, another whiteboard, a different continent. She and her colleague had conducted the same seminar in widely diverse settings around the world, and yet they still mined the same not enough words from the hearts of human beings everywhere. Apparently, at least one thing is universal. We all share an experience so powerful and ubiquitous it has wrapped its invasive tendrils all the way around our bruised and broken planet. It's called shame. So I start with that reading um, because, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about shame more and more these days, and we're talking more and more about it in the public square, and that's a good thing. But there's still an awful lot of stigma attached to it. The word itself uh, connotes something that is um, sort of reserved for people who are uniquely broken, um, people who are uniquely flawed and suffering and wounded. And the exercise, that story depicts in the midst of that exercise, this revelation that um, it's like a universal language. It's like one of our only <laughs> math and shame. Those are our two universal languages. Um, and, uh, and so, and well, actually I'd add a third grace, which is what we're going to get into. But um, I read that just to, to sort of 
give us context and to begin to normalize what we're going to get into today, which is this discussion of shame. So with that, with that context, let's, let's get into this week's reading. Week 10, why shame is the beginning of your story, not the end of it. Shame is a story killer. If our lives are like a long road in a vast landscape that crests on the horizon, and if story is the vehicle of our lives, moving us from a broken beginning to a redemptive conclusion, then shame is like bad fuel, clogging the carburetor, preventing our stories from even getting started. Shame prevents the redemption of our pain. We get the truth of this backwards. We think that something is going to come into our lives to redeem what has gone before, and we think the redemption we experience will somehow dry up our shame. But the reality is, shame trumps redemption every time, because it prevents us from entering into the very story that will bring redemption to our lives. Shame binds us. It keeps us waiting for a story to define us and to heal us, and so we fail to take up our existential pens and become the authors of our own stories. Shame has the power to do this because at its very core, shame is a cancer in us that whispers, you are irredeemable. The dictionary defines shame as, quote, the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, ridiculous, done by oneself or another. This is an adequate start, but shame is so much more. So much more. Shame is a murmuring voice inside convincing us the things we did, the mistakes we made, the actions we would die to take back, were not just things we did, but are a reflection of who we are. Shame purrs almost irresistibly. You are, at the very core of you, broken, filthy, ugly, a failure, a loser, unacceptable, disappointing, ignorant, depraved, weak, alone, or even despicable. And always it cajoles, you are irredeemable. It is so quiet that we rarely realize it is there. It is like air in a room. It can be everywhere. It influences everything we do, and we are often completely unaware of it. Sometimes, though, shame tips its hand, and we experience it in subtle ways. It is the rush of color to our face following an innocent joke made at our expense. It is the subtle lie that masks our mistakes, uttered in the silent conviction that being known, really known, will make others avert their eyes. It is the frightened rush of adrenaline when asked to speak up, to reveal even the smallest parts of our broken inner space. At other times, shame comes crashing in, and there is nothing subtle about it. It is a dark depression that tells us to stay in bed because we have nothing to offer the world, and even if we did, the world would eat us alive. It is a sweeping panic, screaming that nothing and no one is safe enough to trust with who we are. It is a deep, deep loneliness that takes us by the shoulders and looks us in the eye and tells us that we are alone because no one can stomach us. When we experience shame, and when we buy into the lie that we are irredeemable, we foreclose on our story. When we think there is nothing good in us, we simply quit believing our story can be redeemed. Life becomes about protecting ourselves from the view of others, lest they discover who we really are at our core. Our stories become a tale ripe with hiddenness, tentiveness, and fear. Our lives become stagnant and apathetic at best, and small, shriveled, and dead at worst. But we need not succumb to the power of shame. Regardless of whether your shame is very small and hidden, or like a mountain inside of you, whether it is subtle and quiet or loud and voracious, the shame you experience does not have to be the end of your story. In fact, your shame can be the beginning, the beginning of a story that brings change, healing, and redemption. Around the time I was beginning to face my own shame, I got some song lyrics stuck in my head. They were the antidote to the voice of shame that was shouting there, and they went like this. And in one little moment, it all implodes. This isn't everything you are. Breathe deeply in the silence, 
no sudden moves. This isn't everything you are. Just take the hand that's offered and hold on tight. This isn't everything you are. There's joy not far from here. I know there is. This isn't everything you are. There are places in the world where a different voice, a new voice, can begin to speak to you. It says, steady, I'm here and you are more than your shame. This voice doesn't try to convince us that everything is okay or that we're flawless or whole. Quite the opposite. It assures us that we don't have it all together, that we make mistakes and live broken lives, but that we are more than our mistakes and our regrets. So much more. The new voice is steady and persistent, and if, you, if we listen to it, with time, it begins to compete with the voice of shame, and it rings so true that we can begin to trust it, and then new things begin to happen. We can name our regrets and then walk past them, telling a new and better story with our lives. We can make mistakes, maybe even mess up really big, and we can apologize and decide that regardless of who decides to forgive us, we have forgiven ourselves. We can admit that we are awfully messy inside, and decide that the mess is not the end of things, but that it is the beginning of a great project of redemption. There is a place inside of you where a better voice is telling a better story about you. Let the next chapter of your story be about listening for that voice. So that is the reading for this week. Um, I'm going to scroll back and pick up comments here in a second, but it's just so surreal to read that to read that uh, chapter. That actually... Um, a version of that was the fourth blog post I ever wrote in probably January or February of 2012, so almost six years ago. Um, the first few blog posts that I wrote were, um, were, were posts mostly about therapy. Uh, and then this, this post about shame just kind of came to me. It was At the time, it was actually in the middle of the context of the Joe Paterno scandal at, uh, at Penn State University. And, and this this post about shame poured out of me, and I'm like, oh, I guess I'll share it. I didn't share anything personal in it. I wasn't at that place yet, but I'll share this these ideas about shame. And uh, like my first couple of posts, I think were shared a couple of times, and then all of a sudden, 40 people shared this post, and I'm like, wait a second, people want to talk about this? People want to actually dig into this thing that I've been having to dig into in myself? Well, let's let's do that, <laughs> um, and and in a way that sort of kicked off where where we're at today. Um, it's interesting too to, that in this post I refer to the other voice. You have the voice of shame, and then the other voice I refer to it as the better voice. Um, and then of course eventually in the course of my blog writing and then in Lovable I begin to refer to that voice as the voice of grace. But here it's here it's just referred to as the better voice. So at any rate, I guess a little backstory um, about the. My, this post, uh, this chapter, how it originated, where it came from, and and where it's going to. Um, I'm going to scroll back and, and see what folks are saying. Julie writes, carburetor cleaner for shame. Love that, because gummed up carbs need a bit of solvent, something pure that dissolves the gunk and burns hot, and that is a great parallel. Wow, I l- love you taking it to the next level there, Julie, um, that, this, that this voice of of grace that we will begin to attend to um, is carburetor cleaner, um, loosening up, dissolving the shame. Um, so good. It's good stuff. Heather writes, wow, okay, such a big reading. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot, Heather. Thanks for just naming that. <laughs> um, Emily writes, I like that you mentioned shame can be a mountain inside or small and hidden, but it's there. Yeah, that's the that, that was a remarkable thing that came out of that experience in that continuing education seminar was that 
if you paid attention long enough, in this case for us, I mean, the, the first day we spent about eight hours um, just attending to what was going on inside, practicing interventions that would help us do so, that all of us were able to get to that. And so for some of us, the shame had been really loud and obvious, for others, not so much. Um, mine felt quite a lot more subtle, um, you know, not interesting enough. It was a, an experience that would come up, for instance, like on a podcast when I take a break and there's a pause. Shame. Oh no! You know you're not keeping them in. You're not keeping them engaged. You need to do more. Um, so more subtle for me, but invariably it was there, and uh, and so that's something that we can can trust, um, and we can sort of begin to listen for it. Brenda writes, "What song are those lyrics from?" Good question, Brenda. Um, the song is by Snow Patrol. Uh, it's from an album called Fallen Empires. And I believe the, the title of the song is the refrain in, that, in those lyrics, this isn't everything you are. But I could be wrong, but it's On Fallen Empires by Snow Patrol. Deb W writes, yep, there's a lot there. Shame loves to whisper and yell sometimes all within the same breath. Thanks again for your vulnerability. It inspires me to do the same. So the, it sounds like the, a couple dominant responses are um, the carburetor analogy works, that shame is sort of gunk that keeps us from, from running the way that we were designed to run, <laughs> and, uh, and that we need something to loosen up that gunk, something to come in and, and sort of get the blockage out of the way. Um, and I will tell you that has become my experience of human beings invariably in my work as a therapist. I used to think there's something fundamentally broken here. That's what shame says, something fundamentally broken here, and we need to figure out how to put it all back together and hopefully get it functional again. And now it's, um, there's something in here that is still totally whole, um, but something is blocking the living of that thing. Um, and that thing is shame telling us that what is in there is broken <laughs> rather than whole. So if we can begin to, to listen for a different voice that encourages us that we are at some level still intact and whole, and we are, we are hesitating to live out that truth about us, um, that could be a real game changer. And then I guess the other theme is that there's a lot going on in this. And uh, again, I, I'll sort of attribute that to the fact that back when I was, you know, back in 2012, you could write a blog post that was 1,800 words, and people would still read it in social media. So this was probably originally about that, and uh, I've cut it down here for this companion book. But um, but there was a lot in there. Uh, at that time, I didn't know I was going to write anymore. But I thought I was writing my one post about shaves. So I was trying to get all of it in there. But in that way, I thought it was a good introduction to for shame in the companion book. It's. Uh, we're going to stay here for a while. We're not going to move past shame quickly and go into something else. In fact, for most of the remaining months of listening, this is what we're going to be focused on. So we are going to be unpacking it as we go forward. Deb F. writes, Just knowing that others have as much shame as I did, if not more, made me realize it didn't have to para be paralyzing and there was a way through it to get back to the me underneath. Um, there, If there's one thing that shame feeds on the most... It's, I'm the only one who's ashamed. <laughs> I'm the only one who experiences this. Um, so as soon as we bring it out into the light in community, um, it, it truly, it's the tipping point. It, it doesn't stand a chance from there. Um, and, and that's why I think what we're doing here is so powerful and I'm so excited about it. It doesn't stand a chance. Would you, oh, you're ashamed too? Well, but I know that's not true about you. So wait a second. If the things that, if the shame I feel Maybe that's not true about me either. Um, maybe that's not the truth. Wow. Um, 
things things can start to to loosen up really quickly um, when that happens. So um, yeah, that that continuing education was powerful for me. That all these psychologists were also feeling it, and I, I hope I hope as we talk more about this, we can um, redefine shame not as a, a unique personal and dark experience, but as really sort of core to being human um, and an experience that if we're connecting in the midst of it, we are slowly dissipating it. Brenda writes, I had a shame trigger happen this week, and I had an armadillo response for a few days, so the reading this week was very useful. <laughs> Brenda, you give me these these nuggets. I love that. An armadillo response, right? The frightened turtle, is that what you're saying? Um, put on the, the heavy armor. Um, and that is, and we're going to be getting into that in, in the coming weeks, how the, the typical, so you have responded normally, Brenda, um, when... When the shame response happens, the sense that I'm not good enough, um, there's an intense vulnerability that comes from that, the sense that I could be rejected or uh, I could be shamed again. The normal response is protection. Um, and so uh, we don't want to then shame ourselves for having that normal armadillo response. And I think the way you state it here shows that you didn't. Um, instead, we want to be able to observe that response and say, is having the armadillo response and staying there, is that really helping me heal my shame or do I need to do something different with it? I need to go find one person to confess that that moment of shame to do it, you know, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, I love that you you came here and, and just sort of stated it. It tells me that uh, you are beyond the armadillo response at this point for real. You know, again, these are there's a lot going on here, and so we're going to be unpacking it going forward. I want to just transition briefly here to the exercise for this week, and then we can continue whatever discussion is coming up or whatever thoughts are coming up for you right now. Um, and also discuss the exercise, and then we'll be carrying this into future weeks. So I'll read the exercise, and then we'll keep talking. Week 10, practice. The final barrier between you and your truest self is your shame. It is your original wound, and it gives rise to most of the pain you have already begun to face. As you face that pain, and it begins to quiet, perhaps for the first time in your life, you will begin to hear more clearly the voice of shame beneath all of it. This voice has been instigating your fear for a very long time. Whether we realize it or not, most of us look at life through the lens of story. And deep down, many of us believe our story is pretty much over. We have life yet to live, but we feel the writing is already on the wall. The truth is, however, that everything which comes before the facing of our shame is merely backstory. It's prologue. It's setup. This week, we want to cultivate the experience of this truth by engaging in an exercise. This is how I present the exercise to some of my therapy clients. Number one, imagine your life as a movie. Number two, imagine the painful experiences in your life as the brief early scenes of the movie, developing the character for the audience, showing the viewers what must be overcome and how the character must change in order to do so. Number three, Imagine your character's decision to begin facing their shame and embracing their truest self as a pivotal point in the plot, a turning point for your character. Number four, in your favorite kind of movie, the kind that inspires you, what would your character do next? What must they overcome? How would they do it? How would you want the character to be shaped and formed in the process? Number five, write out a movie proposal using your experiences as the plot development and yourself as the main character. Make the script as detailed as you would like, but write a coherent story about how your character overcomes what you have been through. 
Sometimes when we're close to our shame, it's hard to step outside of it and imagine a different story for ourselves. But by casting ourselves as a character in our own story, we may experience a more objective reaction to our circumstances, and we may be inspired to become the kind of character we would love and cheer for. The bottom line of the exercise is this. In a good movie, all the junk that brought you to this moment would happen quickly in the opening scenes. Today would be the beginning of an inspiring movie, not the end of it. So if you thought there was a lot going on in the reading, right? There's an awful lot going on in the exercise. As I read it, my first reaction is like, we're going to do this in a week? Are you kidding me? Um, I, I particularly do not want you to rush through this one. This might be an exercise that can sort of um, evolve for you uh, as in the coming weeks. Um, but it really does arise out of my sense as a therapist that when a client first presents for therapy, oftentimes there's a sense of like, I'm at the end of my rope. Um, I, got, I got no other ideas. I need some help because I don't know what else to do. And there's very much a sense that um, I've lived my story and I'm sort of at the end of it. Um, and oftentimes I'll, I'll sort of reframe that, that if this was a, if this was a, a movie, for instance, the, a really good movie maker would find a way to splice all of those experiences that have formed your uh, life and your experience to this point, would splice all of those very early into the movie. We get a very quick sense of who you are, what you've been through, and what you're needing to do to overcome some of that pain and redeem it. Um, and you showing up in a therapy office, that wouldn't be the last scene of any movie. You know, that's coming really early on. That might be early act one, maybe the end of act one. Um, so, uh, so trying to reframe our, our relationship to shame, not as, man, um, here I am at the end of my rope, but here I am at the beginning of a story I'm about to write. Um, and the rest of the story will, will be defined by my new relationship to my shame and overcoming it. So, um, anyhow, that's, that's the sort of the inspiration for this week's practice, I guess. Deb F writes, back to observing, a great tool indeed. Yeah, exactly. That, that will be, that theme of observing won't go away for us um, throughout this entire, um, this entire year. That's why I, I think when we had, when we had that conversation, I said, this is sort of like, this is, this is it here. Uh, we, we need to figure out how to do this because it's what's going to help us learn how to observe the voice of shame. It's going to help us listen for the voice of grace. It's going to help us observe our defensive ego reactions in the months of, of belonging where we're trying to figure out how to be authentic even when life feels risky and relationships feel dangerous. Um, and it's going to help us begin to tune in to our passions as we get later into the year and start to think about those. So this observing is going to be a theme that is, is with us all year long. Brenda writes, definitely not past in process. You got it. Yep. If, if you can have grace for yourself for being in process, um, that... that there's an awful lot of shame that is, is uh, eliminated immediately. Jennifer writes, ooh, is it okay if I put a lightsaber in my movie? <laughs> I love it, Jennifer. Um, a, a common theme in recent weeks is that shame can't withstand our playfulness. Shame can't withstand the worthy little one in us showing up and being playful with it. <laughs> yes, you may put a lightsaber in your movie. Um, and I, let's start there. Episode 7. Um, for those of you who have seen it, um, you've got a bunch of characters who look like they're at the end of their rope, right? Um, it, it, if you put yourself in their shoes, if they didn't know that they were in a movie, you put yourself in their shoes, to them the story's over. 
right? You've got a stormtrooper who's like on the run. You've got this abandoned young woman um, who's just trying to get by day to day in episode seven. And, um, and, and it looks like this is, this is sort of the end of the, the road for them. And yet it's just the beginning of the movie. All of that setup happens in just the first few scenes. Um, and, and so, yes, throw a lightsaber in there and, uh, and then go on your adventure into this, Jennifer, for sure. Deb W. writes, wow, really love this idea. Love that the backstory of our lives, the pain up until now, is developing the character. So true. Yeah, you know, one of the, one of the most useful things about thinking of our lives as a story is, uh, you know, that if you're told any story in which the character doesn't have to heal, change, or be transformed in order to, to move through the story, in order to move towards what they want in the story, you don't find it um, meaningful at all. Uh, you, you, you would sort of, you would sort of go oh, like, okay, I guess that was, there was a lot of action in that, but I, I feel somehow empty. I don't feel fulfilled by that, that movie. Um, that in, indeed that a sense of meaning arises from, uh, entering into that journey of redeeming the tough stuff that came early on in the story, um, and continues to come as the story progresses. So, um, it's actually essential to feeling meaningful in the long run, which is, um, sort of a, a paradox that is hard to sometimes hard to swallow. Julie writes, a big redemption story sounds so daunting, but a smaller one to get through a current hurdle sounds manageable. Yep. Um, my favorite movies are not actually the Star Wars, the epic, you know, um, hero adventures. Uh, my favorite stories are, are the other very small ones. I, my favorite movie is a movie called Beautiful Girl, in which you got a bunch of guys 10 years out, out of their high school graduation getting together for a reunion and none of them can commit to these wonderful ladies that they're with um and it's it's them sort of working through through all of that it happens in this tiny little small town in new england um that's my favorite kind of story where the redemption is worked out in in small ways not grand ways right because that's that's shame coming in again saying well your your story has to be big and grand and epic and um and so here you are trying to tell a big grand epic story and like, when does that happen ever? Hardly, you know? Um, and so now you're ashamed again. So yeah, let's embrace that our stories are so small and subtle, um, but there's beauty and smallness, you know? Um, there's meaningfulness and smallness. There's meaningfulness as, you know, as we talk about in Lovable, there's loveliness and ordinariness. Um, that's what we're going here for here, not uh, not the the epic hero's journey, if you will. Heather writes, holy cow, again so big, it scares me to do this exercise, creating my character for the future me. I think I think what I would say is that we have to, again, be careful about setting too grand a goals for ourselves. Um, some movies take place in the course of a day. Um, so maybe the story you write out for yourself is in the course of a normal day. What does it look like to be redeeming some of this backstory? Um, don't, don't, do, do your best to not let shame wedge its way in. And, and try to tell you that your story needs to be a certain way. Um, choose, choose the story that feels uh, redemptive to you and, and focus on cultivating those ideas. Julie writes, for myself, I like the big stories, but can't hang on to the big feeling of inspiration and hope for long because the small every day can be such a mismatch for the grand narrative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I'm, I'm excited to go see the new Star Wars movie. It'll be grand and epic, it'll be awesome. Um, but, and I hear this more and more with uh, teenagers and young adults who have been have sort of spent their early years sort of marinating in a culture, a video game culture in which every story is epic and grand, um, or you know, 
um, a movie culture where superhero movies are like the common thing now, um, they, those, those stories are sort of redefined for them as the norm. And then they can't engage with the normal everyday sort of, um, heroism that it requires to live life. And, uh, and so we do, we, again, we want to be particularly careful of, um, shame telling us that, uh, this, this story needs to, to look like, uh, you know, the most epic and grand of, of movies. Um, and instead it's, it's our story. Um, and it gets to be our story and that's enough. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Heather says, yeah, like Julie, maybe a smaller chunk first, right? The next year first. Yeah. Um, you know, a movie that took place over the course of a year, um, would actually be a pretty sweeping movie. Again, I, I think it's okay next year, next six months, next month, next day, um, whatever scale you want to set it on that encourages you to, um, be most attuned to that better voice inside, you know, um, and not so attuned to the voice of shame. You set it on the scale that, that works for you. And I so appreciate that, that response to this. Um, I think it would have been, you know, there's a potential harm to people if, if what goes out there and is put on the podcast is just write this epic story from beginning to end of your life. And people go, oh my gosh, that's so overwhelming. I, I'm not up to that task. I don't feel good enough. Um, so thank you for the, the encouragement to uh, focus on your story um, on a scale that is helpful to you rather than a scale that is actually counterproductive and harmful. It's, it's so important. Thank you. Deb F. writes, as I get older, I realize ordinary is just fine by me. Um, I'm with you, Deb. That is, that word ordinary is one that surprised me in the writing of Lovable, but then became a theme of it. Um, and it, there's an awful lot of grace in it. Thank you once again, everybody, for another great discussion. Um, I have a feeling we're going to be picking up this discussion right here next week. Uh, so excited to continue that with you. Uh, so we'll wrap it up here for this week. Um, and, uh, and so next week, we're going to focus, again, more on this choice we have to listen to the voice of shame when it's coming even from other people um, and listening to a better voice within us. So it's going to be week 11 of the year of listening, loving, and living. It's entitled Choosing Which Voices to Listen to Around You. Until then, remember, regardless of how messy and painful things might be right now, you're just getting started. Oh, Julie, thank you. Julie writes, and remember, you're lovable. Bye, everybody. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Yeah.